0: just gonna try to shut this baby down shut, shut it down
1: it. shut it down
0: kathy's worried about her audio i'm worried about sounding like a moron jr what are you worried about climate change
1: <laughs> yeah that's valid <laughs>
2: that's uh whether or not sam is gonna show up in the quantum leap reboot
0: mm, i could finally maybe tonight Definitely by Friday. I can't wait to watch it.
1: <laughs>
2: that
0: with Kathy accompanying on the Kleenex tissue. Oh. That that is the remix the world needs. Where's my horn section? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, my God, my allergies. <laughs>
2: All right. Welcome to episode 334 of the Fascinating Podcast, the podcast about the fascinating people and events at the heart of our cultural conversations. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I'm Kathy Kong. And I'm Clay Morgan. Matt Michelotis is back in the writer's room, so not with us this week. But on this week's show, we're going to be talking about an historic moment in American cultural history and the ongoing legacy of school integration. Um, but before that, there was a kind of, a, I guess, kind of a bombshell study that dropped earlier this week from uh, R.C. Sproul's... Uh, uh, it was, it's a it's a it's like a state of the theology survey from uh, I'm not sure how to say this Clay it's a town in Pennsylvania Liganiere Ligonier? Ligon- Ligonier. Ligonier? yeah Ligonier. I was just okay. gonna say
0: um, Ligonier, very famous Pennsylvania area I know that Sproul was always out of there is he still alive yep. I don't think so I think his son on. took over like years ago I think or something I I can't recall
2: so so they released a, a state of theology. Uh, Thing. And what what has been causing some shockwaves across the evangelical uh, web is the fact that so many evangelicals hold are in agreement on what we might call social issues like abortion and homosexuality. uh, But on things that most pastors and theologians would consider more central issues, like whether or not Christ is God, (laughs) there's this wide gap. Um, there are, uh, I think it was, um, yeah, I'm looking here, uh, 43% of evangelicals, specifically, this is not everyone, this is specifically evangelicals, believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Hmm.
1: Um. there Wait, uh What? You yeah. <laughs> keep using
2: that
0: word. I don't think you know uh, what it
2: means. 73%. So almost three out of four evangelicals agree with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So, so this is a denial of Trinitarian theology. This is saying that Jesus is not the son of the Trinity. He's the first created being, which mm. is actually something that... Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe it's one of the things that distinguishes them from mainline Christianity. And yet three out of four evangelicals believe this. It's almost like evangelicalism isn't about Jesus. What? <laughs> so this has been one of the one of the observations that even some very conservative leaning Uh, pundits and bloggers have made is that uh, Kristen Dumez, who we had on the show a couple seasons ago to talk about her terrific book, Jesus and John Wayne, where she argues that evangelicalism is not a theological movement, it's a political social movement. Things like this back that up, right? Um, Many borderline most evangelicals believe things that have been condemned as heresies almost since the beginning of the church, and yet they agree on things like abortion and homosexuality uh, and race and stuff like that. And so yeah, it seems to be less about what is what are the what are the things that are true about God and more about what are the political postures that make us that bind us together in our culture war. Wow. I
0: mean, when we were growing up or even into our adult years, the one thing you knew for sure was that anybody who was in a church that was calling themselves Christian, like they might not know anything about the world or anything else, but they definitely knew Jesus was God incarnate, right? Like that's, it's like the one thing that anybody would have agreed on. I would have thought.
2: So here's the here's the problem though, Clay. When you say Jesus is God incarnate, these are all like theological words that people may know that that's what they're supposed to say, but then if you ask them, so what does it mean to be incarnate? They may not know, right? They may not they right. may not understand what incarnation is, what that yeah. theological language is, and then more importantly, they certainly then don't have any idea why that belief matters and how that's meant to form us to be God's people, you know? And and, right. and if you don't know that, if all you're, if all you're supposed to know, like one of my favorite things to do is to ask pastors and, and preachers when they say, well, you know, it's just all about grace. I'm like, cool. What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, isn't that the problem with the way evangelicalism is quote taught is that it is very, it's taught. There is no questioning. There is no going back and forth. There is very little, I mean, I know pastors are supposed to give application, but usually the application is not around first uh, taking apart theological ideas into practical daily life. And so, like you said, Jr., we can talk about incarnate, but what does that mean in reality? Which is why then people would say, yeah, Jesus is God's first created being Hmm. and I'm a little horrified because (laughs) because that is not is not what we believe or at least that's not what I believe
0: (laughs) I was going to say the cynic in me pictures at least a couple of churches I've attended where they're not spending Sunday mornings explaining theological matters or spiritual practice you know they're basically
1: well, are. they're
0: using that pulpit time to make sure you understand what a liberal is and how to not become fake gay like and well, they're
1: and I yes
0: you know yes. they're just focusing on think, all these other things
1: right and i think that that, that is the way it is presented now, but I also think that that's probably the way it's it has been presented for decades, right? But it's not framed in those words and it's not taught in that way specifically, but now it is. It very much is, well, you know, the libs. We're going to own the libs. Uh, but more, it was, you know, like, well, Christians don't do X and here's why. Christians don't do this, and here's why, under this big idea of what we believe, and if you believe this without actually interrogating what that means and the implications, you just know that that's what you're supposed to say you believe, and then be able to iterate all of the other things that you're not supposed to do, is the big gap, and also still horrifying. Mm. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we've all probably encountered pastors and preachers who will say something like, yeah, the Trinity is just confusing. So don't worry about it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Instead of saying the Trinity is pretty confusing, so we should take time, be careful and, you know, meditate on it Mm
0: -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something like
2: that. Right. 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 So anyway, I'm sure I'm sure we'll come back to this. Uh, It's such an interesting identifier. Man, that is uh,
0: stunning. Like I didn't know this at all. I hadn't heard this at all. It just starting to process it in my brain. It's really stunning.
2: Right. I mean, it's it, it. kind of gets worse the longer you think about it. So, um, yeah, it it has a lot of really troubling implications. Uh, and but, I think, it but confirms, it actually
0: explains a lot. We, right. We have already, we, we've already got troubling implications. This helps explain them a little more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now, as far as solutions and things like that, uh, you know, one, I think. We could do a whole show on this, but part of it is you have to ask if the the people who are the problem even think it's a problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> the people who don't understand the Trinity or think that Jesus is God's firstborn son, um, literally, uh, you know, you have to ask if, if they care, if they, if, if they think having, having a theology that aligns with the historic church's theology actually matters that much. Or if it, what's more important is that they uh, are anti-abortion and anti-gay.
0: Yeah, and like, when I say things like what I'm about to say, a lot of times, to me, it's just so obvious and non-inflammatory, I don't even think about it. I'm sure this will be surprising to some people, but there's obviously a cross-section of bigots and racists who are just looking for where they're provided the greatest cover, and that just may happen to be the evangelical church
2: right now. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. So And
1: historically. (laughs)
2: Yeah. As yeah. we will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. History, um, eh? Later. Hey. So so Kathy, let me tell you a story. Yes. Once upon a time, <laughs> uh we were planning a show <laughs> on school segregation, school integration, and the anniversary of the famous Little Rock Nine. And uh, we have a resident historian on the podcast, Clay Morgan, you know. Big deal. sure you've heard of him. Um and Clay invited my wife and me to do some bar trivia at the movie theater slash pub by their house, Alamo Drafthouse Cedars. World's greatest so we theater. went. We went uh, and did Geeks Who Drink Trivia at the theater. Um, we ended up coming in second place because I oh. can't you peer pressure and didn't trust Clay. Okay, oh. so, so. we lost by one. We tied.
0: It was a full and then lost tie, the tie. Break. And there was yep. a tiebreaker. Oh, breaker. no. But there Kathy, was a question.
1: That should, Clay wait, wait, got wait, right.
0: We, we should give... There, there were a couple questions that Clay got right,
2: that Jr. overrode. No, there was one. <laughs> <laughs> and Jr. overrode it because he got peer pressured by the rest of the team. And Clay was right. And if I had just listened to Clay, listeners, if we had just listened to Clay, we would have won.
1: <laughs> oh. Okay, so
2: let's uh, take from that what you will. What a powerful segue. <laughs> yeah, but here was one of the questions. Okay. In what year did the famous Little Rock Nine go to a white school and become integrated?
0: Well, there was, the actually, a, there was actually a multiple about today, choice.
2: Yeah, well yeah. But the very thing we're talking about today was a question last night in our bar trivia. Yep. How about that? Oh, so I the entire tell. table I,
1: I can't. was wrong.
2: No, no, Clay got it right.
1: Um, <laughs> well, Clay got it right, but the rest of the table was wrong.
2: The rest so of the table had no like, idea. Oh, this was oh. not the question. This was not the question I didn't trust Clay on. No, no. Oh. no. no that was no, a different no, no, no. question. Yeah. That question was what country lies between Ethiopia and the Red Sea? And it's a the- country that starts with E. <laughs> <laughs> That's the face Jen made, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So um, I'm
1: just going to blame U.S. school yeah. and its lack of emphasis on geography. Like, I could find it on a map. I just don't know no, it in my it's head. Fair. Al- almost right?
0: immediately I said Eritrea. And the table decided to go with Egypt. Of course Egypt. you did. To be fair. We went with
1: Egypt. To no, be I fair. Mean, Egypt and the sea, kind of, but the Red Sea, the parting of, but... Yeah. there were three moments,
0: know. There were three moments where I came against JR. One, I adamantly said, despite your certitude, sir, I am right and change it. And I was right. Because I I really knew I could take a stand. But there were a couple other times where there was a debate and I I didn't have the confidence. I didn't really know myself to be true. And Eritrea, I was was not real sure. I just kind of thought, Egypt does make more sense. So... (laughs) If I I would have taken a stand, Jr. would have followed my leadership, but I just didn't have the fortitude on that one.
1: Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) That's true. Okay, so we're saying it's the 65th anniversary, Mm -hmm. yes? Yep. So would it be minus 65 of the current year? It would be. But also, remember... I'm a a word person, journalism, so Mm. math, Mm -hmm. not my thing. Numbers not good. (laughs)
0: Who are you telling? Yeah, 65 years ago this month is 1957. 1957. So that is the timing of this event we're talking about today. And I am curious, you know, how many people have heard of the Little Rock Dine? How many people know much about the Little Rock Nine? You know, if it's completely off the radar, if it's still just prominently remembered alongside a very related civil rights event, the Brown versus the Board of Education case, right? Right. So, Kathy, what, just off the top of your head, what do you know about Brown versus the Board of Education? What were they trying to figure out?
1: Uh, They were trying to figure out whether or not they could legally separate black children from white children, so long as they said it was, you know, equal. Equal, separate Separate but equal, right? With scare quotes in the air. And I'm still kind of thinking about like, oh, some people may say, wow, that was a long time ago. And in my mind, it's like, oh, that was not very long ago. Yeah. (laughs) 65 years was not that long ago.
0: You know, it's so true. I think about when I was a history student, and then I was a history teacher, and now I was just a history lover in middle age. It's amazing how your understanding of time and context changes as you age. Like, what was, like, forever ago, it's like, wow, that's not that long. You know, that's, that's just one me away. So, it's crazy when you really think, it's yeah, crazy when you think yeah. about it. Um, but that's right. They were trying to uh, litigate a philosophy that was played out in very practical ways. And so, from 1896 specifically on, after an old case called Plessy v. Ferguson, the ruling doctrine was that we could be separate but equal, right? That we could have separate facilities, for example, dedicated towards uh, white people and black people, but as long as they were of equal accommodation, that it was perfectly legitimate and just. Spoiler! Spoiler! They were never actually equal in accommodation or quality. Double spoiler, it wasn't actually just, which, of course, many people felt and knew and lived all along. So, this is why you hear about, you know, the water fountains. Sometimes, you know, there were there were um, still buildings around the country today where you could see the legacy of s- split bathrooms. And there were cemeteries for... Uh, white people that did not allow black people to be buried in them. There were, of course, differences in movie theaters, if not entire buildings, then a balcony section that was separated. Hospitals, famously. So you could literally be in medical crisis, but if you had the wrong skin color, <clears throat> you could not gain access to the nearest hospital in a life threatening situation. And Very prominently, a category that was caught up in this is, of course, schools, school buildings, right? So, when we hear so much about the civil rights movement and all of those efforts to gain awareness and to make change, and we see a lot of that come to fruition in the 1960s, at least legislatively, those battles, of course, were fought for so long, up until that point, continued to be fought since then. So, the 1950s is a real... Um, ground zero for so many of these situations, right? Not surprisingly, coming out of World War II, where we sent segregated troops to fight against tyranny. And even Harry Truman was like, "Ah, I'm not very smart, but, you know, that kind of doesn't seem logical.
1: Right, the irony there. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's where we were in the 1950s. And as you said, Brown versus the Board of Education is this famous Supreme Court case that pulled together a number of different um, plaintiffs and situations and became the court's chance at a high level to make an umbrella ruling. So, JR, before we hop into kind of the execution of this with the Little Rock Nine, um, what do you know about kind of how things were happening between 1954 and 57? What what happened to separate but equal?
2: Yeah, so this, I, I will say this is stuff I've learned a lot in recent years doing my own research. Because growing up, it was always, oh, like exactly what you said, right? Uh, black kids and white kids are not allowed to be in the same building. And, and that, that, w- that was the end of it, right? But I think one of the things that um, – one of the ways, how do you measure equality, right? There's a couple of different ways to do that. One is you can measure outcomes. So are our students performing to the same level at, at, in both of these different places? Another one is actually, though, money. How how much is the state spending on each kid? Right. Um, do the white kids have as much money spent on them as the black kids? And what you actually find out uh, when you go back and look is that, uh, to your point, Clay, right, <laughs> no one's surprised here, but it was wildly unequal, um, not just in the South, actually, all over the country. Anywhere that the, the, the schools were segregated, the white schools got a significantly higher chunk of money, and that came from federal, state, and local levels than than students of color uh, to, to the point where, like, for every dollar spent on a white kid, it would be like pennies. On a black kid, right? And, and, and a
1: chair, a chair.
2: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> it. Right. But, but we think about this today. Like, you know, um, I remember when our school, my public school got internet. Well, if your school's going to have internet, it needs to have computers. Well, how nice are the computers, right? What kind of software comes on them? All of these things cost money. When you go to your science classes, what kind of equipment do you have? Do you actually get to perform experiments and do labs, or is everything just on a whiteboard? Oh, not a whiteboard, excuse me, a chalkboard, right? I mean, they're like, like when you really get into what equipment the schools have for the kids. That's where it comes from, right? It's not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not literally every kid gets a certain amount of money. It's when you look at this school—if this school got ten thousand dollars to do a technology upgrade, did the other school get ten thousand dollars to do a technology upgrade, right? And um, I mean, I, I think that's a little bit easier for us to see today than back then, but it was the same kind of a thing, right? How well, and we've what- talked
0: about not only gerrymandering on the show, by the way, but you just talked about. Concrete and infrastructure and bridges last year, right? We had a show around that article right. you wrote. And, and not only the reality of the infrastructure, but how it groups people. And, of course, we put kids into schools based on neighborhoods
2: and communities and geographical so, areas. Right. So now you're starting to get into how the U.S. has maintained school segregation in the wake of Brown versus Topeka. Because okay, so we should reali- probably circle back to this. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because the reality is nothing much has changed despite this landmark ruling, yeah. which again was a massive shock to me when I started learning that. Because growing up, I always learned like I mean, I went to school with black kids and Asian American kids and you know, Latino kids and all that. So I was like, oh, like, see, it worked. Like, we're not racist anymore. Yeah. You know? Um,
1: yep. so yeah. do you think people see the difference more now? than they did back then. I, I don't know if people really understand when it comes down to it. But yes, we should circle back. Yeah, let's I talk, think the reality yeah. is people are like, well, is it really that bad? Well, that, that's, a gr- the, that's a great... Sure, if you look at the extremes, right? But when when it comes down to it, people are like, well, you know that school on the other side of the county, is it really that bad? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, the water that I'm drinking in Libertyville versus ooh, Jackson, Mississippi. And what does that have to do with school? Everything. Yeah,
0: so I like this I like this context to set up this event, right? Because it speaks to so many different realities. And by the way, you could go hop on YouTube probably in 30 seconds and just go find like whatever the nightly news footage was watched by 40 million people, you just go find conversations where reporters are putting microphones in front of like white people's faces and being like, What do you think about allowing these black children to come into the schools? Like, well, it's never gonna happen as long as I'm here. Like surrounded by the whole community like this is just the prevailing mindset and conversation so i think we'll come back around to that that specific thought kathy about where people's attitudes are and whether they're just masked better or not or how much real change we've seen but let's talk about what happened here a couple of years out from brown versus the board of education in some places integration went fairly smoothly or at least it didn't create historic tremors And we come to Little Rock Central High School. So in 1957, the Arkansas chapter of the NAACP, led by Daisy Gaston Bates, worked to find some families and students that were willing to make this big transition and to go into an all-white school. So the Little Rock Nine refers to the nine students who entered the classroom this month, 65 years ago. They are uh, there's there's some very distinguished people on those lists by the way we'll we'll talk later on about where they ended up in life but Minnie Jean Brown Elizabeth Eckford and Elizabeth Eckford is the famous uh, iconic photo of this event if you've ever seen the young stoic lady with her books trying to walk to class and she's surrounded by uh, a white mob yelling including one uh, uh, high school aged white girl who is just filled with so much venom and hatred in this iconic photo that it's it's shocking. Um, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Thelma Mothershed, Melba Patillo, Gloria Ray, Terence Roberts, Jessica, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Walls. And uh, I actually had a chance to hear Ernest Green speak. He came to my alma mater when I was a student. He, um, he was in the Clinton administration. He did a lot of different stuff. Uh, Ernest Green happened to be the only senior of the nine. So, they were uh, all heading into at least a couple years of a high school experience, um, and as we'll see, uh, a lot of unexpected things that happened. So, those are the nine students. And on the morning that it was time to finally make this really scary entrance into this world, they they were a little nervous uh, because from the governor of the state on down, they were basically being threatened. And eight of the nine families had a telephone, but Elizabeth Eckford did not. And that's why she's in that iconic photo, because poor woman, not only would this have been terrifying to go with all of your friends, she ends up out there alone taking this walk, which is why she's uh, in in this image. So, these nine students, um, they attend school, and, uh, They had varying experiences. Some of them were literally directly impacted by physical violence. There was, of course, a lot of intimidation and factors across the board. But what we see is that the governor of the state, using the excuse that he was worried about their safety and that this shouldn't happen, he actually called in the Arkansas National Guard. And um, now we have a real constitutional crisis in the air. So the president of this era is Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, famous guy, he had been the leader of all of the Allied forces in World War II, famously known as Ike, and he was the president from 1952 to 1960. Eisenhower was pretty typical for your older white guy of the time. Actually, he was atypical in a lot of ways. He he definitely did some surprising things that ended up having a real positive legacy. Um, he helped pull back a lot of the angry war rhetoric that fueled the Cold War. He helped establish the United Nations, and he warned us of the military-industrial complex on his way out of office in his grandpa sweater. But along the way, he just was had he he was at best neutral to blind on the reality of race problems. And obviously, that's a significant issue when you're the president of the United States in the 1950s or any decade. So, Governor Orville Faubus, which you look at his name and you look at his face and you hear him say two words on on footage, I mean, he is every bit the racist Southern governor of the 1950s you could possibly typecast. And Faubus ends up in this showdown with Eisenhower. Now, because the Supreme Court had ruled that separate is not equal, and that schools had to be integrated, any action by a state governor to keep integration from happening was definitely a violation of the Constitution. Of course, you know what the people in the South said, right? When it came down to... <laughs> state rights, I
1: bet they had...
0: Show me school buildings in the Constitution. It's not mentioned in the Constitution, so that means we get to decide states' rights, all that stuff, right? Um, so it's really interesting because you have a national press that is um, is very mixed at this time. There's there's a few people that are super crusaders for civil rights. Of course, there's no black reporters. They haven't uh, ascended into that level of journalism. And you've got, like, a young John Chancellor down there and—, and um, yeah, it was really interesting. Like some some reporters were attacked just for covering it, right, um, and things like that. But these students basically are now up against an entire state National Guard. So Eisenhower calls in the U.S. military, the U.S. Army. So the I, one—
1: I did not know this.
0: It's crazy. Um, John Chancellor said that when the troops showed up from the 101st Airborne out of Kentucky, to him— Again, a young white guy who's a reporter from New York City covering this situation in the South, who himself was accosted. He escaped, by the way, by holding up a microphone. All he had was like a battery-powered cassette recorder, but he held up a microphone to the mob and he was like, you do what you want to me, but anything you do is going to be heard around the world. (laughs) And at least (laughs) the mob was too dumb to understand, you know, batteries and telecommunications. So he escaped that scenario. But he said, when I saw... Those army personnel, 1,200 of them marching down the street in Little Rock, he said, I saw the Constitution coming our way and, and this possibility for progress and change, as potentially violent as it was. So Eisenhower tells Orville, like, not going to happen, take a seat. And the uh, police, you know, are there to then locally be on hand, but the Arkansas National Guard is pulled back. And now the military are literally in the town with the police, like, lining the sidewalks so that day after day, these kids can come to school. It's a a crazy, crazy scenario when we think of how little has changed and how much has changed. But, like, to imagine just the ability to walk down the street and enter a building was met with this much violence. And violence there was. So, that is the group that we refer to when we talk about the Little Rock Nine, sometimes called the Arkansas Nine, right? It's this flashpoint where you can, you can make a radical decision at the highest level in a court, but what happens when, you know, bodies actually personify what now the Constitution is said to be? And it was, it was incredibly tense. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. I, did show up when Ernest Green earned his diploma, um, and and there's wow. more to, there's more towards the story, um, and this this might this might tee you up even better. But I want to share one last fact about this, and, and see if, if you guys know this. So ineffective was Foulbys at being able to shut down this actual integration, they closed down for 1958. The following year, they closed down all public schools. And put it, they said it was up for a public vote. And you can watch, you can go watch news archived interviews of reporters just asking, like, okay, high school white senior, what do you think about the fact that your school shut down? I think it's the right thing. It's the only thing that needs to happen until we get this, like, and every word you could imagine just being tossed out in casual interview conversation. So, there was actually an entire delay of the entire education system because they would rather have no school for anybody than black children be allowed to attend an integrated school. So that's what was happening in Arkansas in the late
2: 1950s. So I, I want to make a couple observations about that. First of all, um, with, when we say white supremacy is bad for white people too, um, this is the sort of thing we're talking about. Um, this is so much a cut off your nose despite your face moment. Um, and... It, Clay, I think you you said it perfectly when you said so much violence was brought to bear just to keep some people from entering a building. You know, um, imagine how the white kids were being formed. Imagine being one of the white kids in in that picture you were talking about. Right. And knowing that that's like that's your legacy is the look on your face as you were watching a kid who just wanted to have a good education. Right. Come into your space. And by the way,
0: very distinguished. What did they know? These these kids went on and did some stuff too, right? So we're talking, we're talking like you should be glad to have the student body enhanced by these minds and abilities.
1: I don't, do you think that, I guess I haven't done enough research um, or read up, but I do wonder what the, the legacy is for those white students and what the families of those kids think about that time because they are adults now, right? And I can completely see how folks would, be, would just brush it off as, well, you know, they're 18, 19, you know, 14. What do they know? They're just kids, Right. So there is also that excuse and um, the past that white kids will get um, and whiteness gets all the time.
2: Yeah. And, and you just wonder, I wonder, right. Um, was this a moment? Was this a time? Not just a moment, obviously, because as we as, as Clay just mentioned, right, it has these long lasting reverberations was this a time that retrenched them into the racism that they were raised in or was it a was it a time that served as a uh, a wake-up call to to awaken them to the realities of how they had been racialized and an invitation for them into a more just possibility you know
0: I, the, and, mm-hmm. sorry i was gonna say the young woman in that photo her name's hazel bryan and uh i haven't looked up i remember back when i was teaching i did look into it a little bit more because that photo is so iconic people ask the question like what did she grow up to be like what happened and then um i'm just looking at some notes from 2011 so 55 years after you know the the case she was the daughter of a disabled war veteran largely a political. the photograph by the way uh when she was saying what she was saying, which is like literally you can read it in the footage and certainly almost in the photograph. Um, Will Counts was the young photographer who took the picture. Um, but you can go out and read. Uh, there's actually an entire book about these two and like what this, what they represented about America. But I don't know um, that there's any sense of... I, I haven't found yet what Hazel Bryan... Um, eventually uh, said
1: well but isn't that interesting too is that that says as much about the current times as it does what happened in the past is that there? there is that tendency there are certain things that we're going to remember and yes it's wonderful that we know the names of the nine and where they ended up but it also is a disservice to history to not know where those students who were yelling and um, screaming and also captured in those images like we should also know those names and hold to account um and a and a bit of uh learning from that experience
0: so check this out so uh, i'm reading i'm I'm just reading this now so she i guess she realized that she was going to have kids And that people were going to realize that the person in the history books was their mother. So it says in sometime in 1962 or 1963, no cameras. uh, She was Hazel, who was sitting in the trailer in rural. I'm reading from slate.com in rural Little Rock, in which she and her family now live, picked up the Little Rock directory and looked under Eckford without telling her pastor or husband or anyone else. She dialed the number. Between sobs, she told Elizabeth that she was that girl and how sorry she was. Elizabeth was gracious. The conversation lasted a minute, if that. Pretty fascinating. So you can go to slate.com and read more about the many lives of Hazel Bryan, which looks like something I want to follow up on. Um, But that's a great point, Kathy. How many people did not have that mirror held up in a way? And, And again, like if it hadn't been documented and become so famous, like that changes the impact of it. Right. But uh, it's, it's,
2: it's really crazy to think about. So I have a couple, I have one that I keep wanting to get back to, but I keep having other thoughts. I think another thing about white supremacy is how it, um, it offers us. And by us, I mean, white people like me and you clay, it offers us the protection of anonymity, you know, would Hazel have had that same reaction if she had not been drawn into the light by being put in the history books? Right? Would she? Maybe she would have, but I think it's significant. I think about Charlottesville and the Tiki Torch guys and how mm. oh dumbfounded they were that people were identifying them, finding their LinkedIn profiles, and contacting their employers. And that this, this like shock that they had at being held accountable. Right? Because I think there's this like, um, there's this an- anonymizing that goes on. Um, more cynically, someone said, "At least back in the day, they were not, st- or they were smart enough to wear hoods."
1: <laughs> right? Oh, good lord! Well, but, you know, there's that. But well, like, I think by, by the way,
0: we're seeing it with Carolyn Bryant and the Emmett Till. Like, literally in the yes. last month. Yes. I mean, I, uh, J.W. Mylan and Roy Bryant. Like, I I knew they were dead. I didn't even know she was still alive, and like the fact that she's still defiant. Yeah. So
1: well, the other that, the, that's that's white supremacy, right? Yeah. Is that it still is going to protect the narrative that uh, paints whiteness as innocent and righteous and deserves all of the grace? Um, and uh, even if that conversation was a minute, right? It was really about Hazel absolving her guilt. And so, again, where's the responsibility for that? That was just about her unloading decades. Unburdening herself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so, again, I think that that plays into, I think, the conversation that we started out with is what do we really believe and how does that play out in our lives? And so this understanding, this very weak understanding of theology and how that actually is lived out has been playing out. For centuries right yeah. this is nothing new this is nothing new because a lot of those folks who are yelling and decided that it was better not to have school <laughs> than to share a classroom with a black classmate also went to church on sundays and were pastors and pastor's wives and sunday school teachers and they had no problem they had no problem
2: um you know the other thing i was thinking about was along those lines That when we talk about integration, what we see happening is black kids being taken to white schools. What we never see happening is white kids going to the black schools. Uh, And a Mm -hmm. large part of the reason for that was because of how much worse the educational experience is in the black school. Right? So... Uh, and that's the thing that has not changed nearly as much today.
0: Or um, or an extension of that, if integration is welcomed, even into the white schools, or celebrated, how often is it because those students bring some kind of benefit through demographics, grants, athletic success, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that people are happy to uh, to celebrate integration in a way that is self-serving. Much like with the Native Americans and the Carlisle uh, Pennsylvania School. And, like, you know, you got Pop Warner and these football, you know, like the, the football legend who's named for all of the kids' programs. Like, oh, such a friend to the to the Natives. No, man, just looking for a winning football team he literally could take out and beat Penn State and Harvard with. So, there's a lot of legacies uh, around education that are conflicted. And Jr., I, I asked you last night if you could, you know, think a little bit more about uh, a way to structure the conversation. Like, how have things changed or not changed? And I, I know you've been doing some reading on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, so again, the reality is that uh, what essentially what Brown versus Topeka did was made it legal for minority students to attend white schools. What it did not provide for was making sure that all students have the same amount of money spent on them or anything about achievement, right? There was nothing. It was literally just like a, a, a spatial integration, which is not nothing. It's not nothing, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And so what it did uh, was what we've seen a lot of racial policies do is that it kind of drove everything underground because now you're not allowed to be outwardly, overtly segregationist. So it have to get more clever. You already mentioned redlining and all the housing discrimination stuff so that when we say, well, we just have kids go to the schools by where they live, which seems totally reasonable. And not in any way racialized until you recognize that at the federal, state, and local level, we have been very careful about deciding who can live where for generations so that now the schools are divided by race still largely. Um, the the majority of students, I will say this specifically, the majority of white students in America attend school with other white kids. It's It's a little different for kids of color. Um, but it's also true. In 2018, there was a report that was that was published um, that said that uh, school districts that enroll the most students of color receive about eighteen hundred dollars or thirteen percent less per student. Okay. Hmm. Um, and there's all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of ways that this gets subverted. If you are in a wealthy suburb, it's going to be predominantly white, and you're going to have a massive booster club, right? Um, you're going to have parents that are raising money for band and for sports and for all this stuff. And so in addition to the local money that comes in, which is already going to be more than the local money that comes in from the more urban and scare quotes, urban school. um, You're also getting like literally tens of thousands of dollars being dumped in to the school through the booster clubs, through the parents, through fundraising. That's just not happening in the, in the, Schools that are predominantly kids of color. Mm. And so you get these, you, we still have massive, massive, massive inequities uh, at the school level. When we talk about by the time a black kid graduates, they have had tens of thousands of dollars less invested in their education than a, a comparable white kid. And we know that quality of education matters, right? And right. so, um, I mean, there, there are so many. There's so many uh, additions to this. I mean, we talk about what kind of schools teachers want to work in. Uh, right, what it's infrastructure, it's looks faculty like.
1: it's- and staff, it's all of the bells and whistles, it's the environment. It's, I mean, I remember moving from the Chicago Public School on the north side, Waters Elementary, and moving to the west suburbs, uh, Waterbury <laughs> Elementary, and being blown away by the difference of the building itself and just walking in and realizing that I was it—I was in a completely different world. And when we moved, that would have been like 1978, nine. Um, we were the first Asian American family and we may have been the first family of color In that elementary school district and my sister and i felt it for sure but i just remember distinctly walking in and being like this does not look anything like the school i just left from the playground to the the entryway that there were buses i mean that that was wild like we just everybody just walked chicago public school but yeah, there were buses because it was drawing from a broader space, physical space. And I still think about that. I still think about how different that experience was.
0: I think a lot of things too, in this conversation, um, I certainly have lived a very ordinary middle-class existence. You know, I have tons of privilege. I think a lot of the, people who like know about the ghetto or know about really poorly developed and suffering areas they don't actually see it like we, i don't think we really have an understanding that in 2022 what impoverished parts of towns and specifically urban areas can are really like um and even if you see it on like a tuesday afternoon versus a friday night a saturday night and It it just creates such a stark picture of how this legacy from the the physical infrastructure, the gerrymandering, the institutions that have, have driven segregation, of how it really drives poverty and perpetuates the cycle. I just don't think most of us really see the full reality of it. We see Hollywood versions of it, and we celebrate the story of the talented voice or the prized fighter who escapes, you know, um, but this is still such a real legacy for so many millions of people that's still with us, and, uh, and, and it's it's just hard to ignore.
2: Well, and I think this is this falls under the like no better, do better, right? Um, Brown versus Topeka. I grew up thinking it was the end of the conversation. Right, we did it, we integrated
0: it. Yeah, the Thurgood Marshall, the lawyer, became the the Supreme Court justice and
2: Right. Yeah. And and I think I think we need to treat it as the beginning, right? It was the first step in a long journey to making sure e- education is truly equitable. Um there's a lot more work to do. Not that the work is over. And so um yeah. And and I mean, you know, Kathy, you're you're pretty heavily involved in local politics, right? So like you know, like these these things are where these things happen at the local level. Like we're talking about local school board elections right. and that kind of stuff. Right. Like that's the, that's, that's where a lot of this stuff is being decided. Right. So um, yeah, like we care who's in the white house, but it, it probably actually matters a lot more. Who's on your local school
1: board. Right. And I am thinking about, you know, even at the level of what are the kids reading? Right. And the, the whole <laughs> conversation around banned books and what the curriculum is going to look like and what's being taught I mean, imagine if this isn't being taught, right? Um, and I can imagine and I can believe that this won't be taught because whether or not you think it's the beginning or the end, it still shines a light onto what the reality was at that time. And that's a reality that I think a lot of people want to forget um, mm. as, much as, as much as possible so that it cannot be connected to the present,
0: well, I would encourage everyone to um, read more, uh, not only about this event and the civil rights movement, but specifically, um, it's pretty cool to find out the stories of the Little Rock Nine, and they make it quite easy for you. You can go to Little Rock 9 that's the number nine, LittleRock9.com. Um, these folks are still going, man. Uh, they've got like contact information. You can bring them as a speaker. You could reach out to them. Maybe you could even have someone come speak to a school or you know hopefully they've got uh, even the ability to appear remotely but i mean terence roberts became dr terence roberts carolotta lanier just a rock star uh, in multiple halls of fame and um, they all received the congressional gold medal and they've all been honored by presidents melba beals who was kicked and had acid thrown at her at that school um, it, it had a long career, continues as an inspirational speaker. Just remarkable stuff. So littlerock9.com, you can go and uh, and learn more about their stories.
2: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Clay, for putting this, this episode together. It's been really interesting. Um, I think we want to shift now to what is fascinating us this week. Can uh, I go first? Can I go I, first? Please do. I would just like to say, though, uh, I'm doing this in protest because I have seven things and I'm o- I only get one. So Clay, you cannot have what's seven fascinating things this week. No, yeah. I know, I know, Kathy. I'm no. only going to do one. Why don't you start a "What's Fascinating Jr."
0: podcast and then you can just talk about all the things. I thought that I thought that's what this was. Follow Jr. Foresteros <laughs> on Twitter or Facebook for more things he likes or doesn't like. And uh, I'm not even going to take these two on on the Elvis movie. But let me talk about a much better film.
2: <laughs> Agreed.
0: <laughs> you guys, I saw the Woman King on Sunday I'm night. So jealous! Oh Very my goodness! To see this one. I I've missed a lot lately. I, I I didn't know multiple TV shows and movies were coming out. Yeah, but you made time for Elvis. And, um, yeah, months ago, <laughs> and and Jen told me we got to see the Woman King. We went. Holy cow. Like, just give Viola Davis the Oscar, first of all. Granted, with all due respect to five months of more movies coming, um, she's got to be in the conversation, I'm guessing, pretty hardcore. Uh, If you are, like many people, unfamiliar with what The Woman King is, it's a new historical epic about the Egoji, the all-female warriors who defended the Dahomey in Africa. It is such a, uh, it is an action film. And I wonder what the average person thinks of when they think of Viola Davis, right? Probably a particular role or, or what, whatever it is, it's about to change forever. Like, that's all I can tell you. Like, there is who you think Viola Davis is. And then there is who you see her as after you watch this film which is really remarkable despite, you know, all the COVID challenges of bringing a production to bear. They put a lot of money into the film. It's already outperformed expectations by a wide margin in its opening days. Um, Oh, man, it is so, it is so intense. But it's very good, and it's called The Woman King, and it stars a number of very talented people, including some breakout roles. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I think we're just starting to hear about this film. It's on your radar, both of
2: you? Oh, yeah. Planning to see it this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Uh, Kathy, what about yeah, you? Yeah,
1: so um, I have uh, really enjoyed finding funny things just because I need to offset reality. Um, and Peter and I watched a Netflix show called Mo. Um, and the, the series is very loosely based on, well, maybe not so very loosely based on, uh, Mohammed Amer's personal life as a Palestinian American refugee. So that alone should make your eyebrows go what because what's so funny about being a refugee and yet he does this masterful job of kind of pulling out um, kind of the brutal violent terrifying moments of childhood and life and then making the viewer kind of relate to the terror and the fear of everyday life of fitting in at a new school or being terribly embarrassed by your mother or not living the kind of life and career expectations of your immigrant family. So um, I really enjoyed the show and then went on to go find his two stand stand-up shows that are also online. So I would highly recommend um, the two shows, which I cannot remember <laughs> stand up comedy, but Mo on Netflix.
0: Yeah. We watched the first episode and we're really impressed. I haven't uh, got to keep going yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, Peter was like, it's a comedy. And we watched the first episode and I was like, uh, what kind of comedy? All right. JR, what are you? Very good.
0: Well, JR, we're out of time. So we'll hear from you next week.
2: <laughs> no, I want to shout out a new horror film that is out called Barbarian. Uh, I would say if you have not seen a trailer, don't watch a trailer. But even if you have seen a trailer, you've only seen about the first 20 minutes of the film. It is terrific. There are some really, really smart writing choices that I would love to discuss, but they would constitute spoilers. Uh, and it is just a movie that constantly keeps you guessing, um, has a lot, a lot, a lot to say, uh, but never gets preachy. Uh, It's just really fun. Uh, Terrific performances all around. Highly recommend it. Uh, I know uh, Kathy uh, Elias and I were texting about it. um, And we could not, between the two of us, could not convince you to go see it. But he and I both really enjoyed it.
1: I just, I didn't have time. I had things to work on. I will go see it. I promise. I promise. (laughs)
2: so yeah it's terrific it's getting to be spooky season so uh highly recommend barbarian uh one of the many great films out in theaters right now
0: i can't wait to see it um let's uh let's wrap up with um with what we're doing oh but first kathy we told you that we narrowly were edged out last night in trivia you know we had to go to a tiebreaker in the building and the final question was this what is according to the usda the amount to in the pounds, nearest pound to the nearest, yeah, pound, the nearest pound, the amount of bananas the average American eats in a year, consumes in a year.
1: <laughs> oh, God, what would you guess? Um, the average consumer bananas,
0: the average American, average consumes.
1: American. Oh, my bananas. gosh. I mm, Is there like were you given a range? Nope. no. Okay.
0: It was not it was not price's right rules. Oh, you just had to pick a number and... and you had to be closer than the other team. Okay,
1: twenty-five pounds.
0: Oh, that was my first response. Uh, JR went with twenty-eight.
2: And the, other... the team went with twenty-eight. And I know. <laughs> said, it's like ten. Ten? No, it's thirteen. It's thirteen. 13 13. Pounds? thirteen.
0: thirteen. But guess what? We said twenty-eight and the other team said twenty-seven, so they won.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: But we were both like neck and neck still. Oh. Yeah. Wait, thirteen pounds. Uh, that's it. Uh, drama. So, Kathy, uh, last week's interview, which, by the way, we didn't ask. We didn't ask how it went without us.
1: Oh, we managed. Sure, it was probably great. We managed. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think that's just assumed <laughs> it went well. <laughs> uh, the book. The book is now out. Yes.
1: Yes, Voices of Lament Reflections on Brokenness and Hope in a World Longing for Justice. It was edited by our fascinating friend, Natasha Sestrunk Robinson. A number of other authors um, and friends of the podcast were a part of um, the book. And so I think it was 29 women of color. Going through Psalm thirty seven, so it's just a really, it's a very rich book. You don't want to plow through it; you want to walk through it and read through very slowly. Um, there's reflections, there's poetry, there's um, questions. There's uh, the cover is gorgeous. Um, so that is out. You can buy it wherever books are sold. And uh, yeah, how about you, Jr. Where nice. that going?
2: I have a couple of new articles up. Uh, the one that I mentioned last week about Sandman and uh, him going to hell is up at Think Christian. So I talk about I talk about dream in hell and the heroine of hell, one of my favorite theological topics. Uh, that, again, a lot of evangel- evangelicals apparently don't even know about. Who, who could have predicted? Um, and then I have a terrific uh, article up at Tor.com. That's on Nope and the Bible verse at the beginning of Nope, where they let me go on for like 2000 words about American empire, black liberation theology and all the stuff in Peel <laughs> um, in Peel's film. So, so I was cool. sure when I submitted it, there was way too much theology in there. And I told them I am like ready and ready and waiting to pull it back. Just tell me what is too much. And they were like, we love it. This is terrific. Uh, what if I told
0: like, you we're not yeah.
2: editing it? Yeah. There were, like, very small edits that were largely, like, rewording some things here and there. No content stuff at all, <coughs> so.
0: JRforsteris,
2: noted Tor.com contributor. It's very exciting. Yeah, so... Anyway, those are that's what I've got. Clay, uh, you've got how's your medium post been doing, by the way? It's not got a lot of yeah, you, you guys know how it is. You can
0: you can bang your head off the wall, not sure what to write, and then you throw out some schlock and it goes viral. And then you write like this thing you feel like is a masterpiece and no one sees it. <laughs> like that's just a common thing that happens when you're a content creator. You can never predict yes. the response, the market, the reach, and all that. Um, For me, it's been fun just getting back to writing. I did put out a piece on Medium. It's called Searching for Truth in an Infodemic Era. Terrible title, I get it. I know it's a bad title, but it's a better piece.
1: (laughs) Doesn't matter, bad title.
0: (laughs) It's it's classic. Clay tells a story and then winds some things around. I had a lot of fun working on it off and on for months. But uh, yeah, check it out, Medium.com. I'm there, and uh, you can just search for Clay Morgan, Clay Morgan, PA. Nice.
2: Perfect. All right, friends, this has been episode three thirty four. We'd love to hear what you think, so let us know at Facebook.com/slash/The Fascinating Podcast or find us on Twitter with the hashtag Fascinating. Uh, we will be back next week with another terrific episode. Until then, take care of each other, be safe out there, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's integrate for real.